pray. Oh God, our Father, we thank you for this word we have before us today, glorifying your Son and clarifying what it means to be his disciples. We do not need more interesting thoughts about him. We need your Holy Spirit to glorify him to us through your word, to humble us before him, and to enrapture us with love for him and with zeal to spend and to be spent for him. God forbid we be theoreticians. God forbid we compile a library of facts about Jesus in a heart empty of love for Jesus and a life bereft of fruit for Jesus. God forbid it. Work in our midst powerfully now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's start this sermon like, like an old-time st- uh, TV show. Last week on Actual Jesus, we had a banquet with an evil king, and we saw the point of that story in a book about Jesus. Suddenly, here's a story with no Jesus in the middle of it, but th- that was the point. Play stupid games, win stupid prizes. This is what a nation gets when it rejects Jesus. This is what an individual gets when she or he rejects Jesus. So Matthew showed us a banquet, and this is the the nice thing about going to a church that teaches through books of the Bible. You're never surprised by where you are. If if it's a topical sermon church, then you never know where you're going to be. But here you know right where you're going to be, and you can read in advance and prime the pump, get your head and heart set for what we're going to look at. So you've probably already noticed that Matthew 14 starts with two banquets. There's a very different banquet last week and this, this week. And the differences between the two are very stark and they are very ironic. Let's think about this together. The first banquet we saw in Matthew 14 verses 1 through 11, uh, thrown by a petty tyrant, Herod Antipas. Herod wished he was a king, but he never won that title. He wanted to act like it though. He was a man racked with guilt, but that guilt did not humble him and drive him to repentance. Instead, that guilt made him... uh, weak and evil and erratic, unpredictable. So this banquet last week took place in a fortress, and the guests at this banquet were the rich and the powerful, the movers and the shakers, the glitzy celebrities of that day and powerful of that day. And at that party, a righteous man was murdered. His life was taken. And we read that his corpse was taken up by his disciples. Now this week in verses 12 through 21, we have a a second banquet. And what a different banquet it is. The host of this banquet is a real king. In fact, he's the king of kings. He's God's king over God's kingdom, the Lord Jesus Christ. This banquet, however, is not held in a fortress as was last week's uh, banquet at the fortress of Machairus. This banquet is held in the desert. And they guests sat on a carpet created by the king, a carpet of grass. No trappings, no baths, no supplies even. And the guests at this banquet were not the rich and powerful, the high and mighty, but they were plain people who hadn't even brought enough food for themselves to eat. No one at this banquet was murdered, unlike the previous banquet. And so there was no corpse to be taken up. But Matthew uses the same verb because what is taken up is not a corpse, but the fragments left over from the banquet created by the king. 
Well, this banquet as we study it today is going to teach us a great deal about ourselves. And it's going to teach us a great deal about what it means to be disciples of Christ. And it's going to teach us a great deal about the heart and the hand of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's begin, Roman numeral one. The first movement in the story is we see retreating in verses 12 through 15. We see retreating, R-E-T-R-E-A-T-I-N-G, not retweeting, but retreating. Let me make that clear. So letter A, the first person we see retreating is Jesus in verses 12 through 14, and we see it in three aspects. First, we see Jesus retreating from a crazed murderer. A crazed murderer. Well, we read the backdrop that Matthew gave in verses 1 through 11 of Herod, who'd heard of the works of Jesus, and his immediate conclusion was, this is John the Baptist raised from the dead. And then Matthew has to explain why he would say that. He would say that because he killed John the Baptist, John the Immerser, John the Immersionist. He killed him. He put him to death in a wicked, weak, uh, erratic way. And so plagued with guilt, he hears of this miracle worker, and he thinks this is John Redivivus, John brought back to life. And so he kills John, and then we read in verse 12, which is a pivot between the two stories, and his disciples, that is John's disciples obviously, came up and took his corpse and buried him, took up his corpse and buried him. Uh, They were... Uh, Afraid of Herod, no doubt, but they were more horrified at the thought of John not being buried. So they came and risked Herod's uh, wrath and being identified with John by taking up his corpse and and burying him. And then we read, and they came and reported to Jesus. So they tell Jesus, I take it, that there was enough of a delay that they had John's death to tell Jesus about, and somehow word got to uh, Herod about Jesus, and they heard of his crazy speculations about Jesus, so they came and told him about the whole package. They told him what Herod had done, and they told him what Herod was saying about him, and so Jesus retreats from that area. From John, in fact, from Herod's jurisdiction. And it's not the first time he's retreated from imminent threat. We saw that back in chapter 12, verses 14 and 15. 12, verses 14 and 15. But going out, the Pharisees took counsel together against him as to how they might destroy him. But Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there because it wasn't his time to die. When the time would come, Jesus would walk straight up to his death and would give himself to it. But this was not that hour. This was not that time. In fact, we're going to read in chapter 26, verse 18, uh, as Jesus is approaching Jerusalem for the final time for his last Passover and his death, Matthew 26, 18, he says, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is near. I am keeping the Passover at your house with my disciples. Yes, at that time, he was going to his death because that was the hour determined by his father. But trusting in God's sovereignty and uh, uh, yielding to his plan didn't make for foolhardiness. I, I don't have any respect for daredevils who risk their lives just to show how brave and how tough and how super they are. I see it as a violation of the sixth commandment. Thou shalt not kill. That includes don't risk your life foolishly. And Jesus was not risking his life foolishly. When the hour came, he would go. But this wasn't the hour. So he withdrew. Uh, And note uh, number two, 
that Jesus not only was retreating from a crazed murderer, but he was retreating with needy people. From a crazed murderer, and number two, retreating with needy people. Verse 13, now when Jesus heard, he departed from there in a boat unto a desolate place privately. And when the crowds heard, they followed him on foot from the cities. It's interesting, hearing starts both these stories. Verse 1, Herod hears about Jesus. And in verse 13, Jesus hears about Herod. And Jesus, hearing about Herod, departs. Now, we can only speculate how hard Herod's death hit Jesus personally. Remember, Jesus was God. Jesus was a man. He was just as much man as he was God. He was just as much much of a human being as you and I are human beings. And so he had the full range of non-sinful human emotions. And I'm sure that hearing the death of his relative and his forerunner, and the man he said was the greatest of those born of women, this model prophet, John the Baptist, I'm sure that hit him. But that's not where the text focuses. It says he departed from there in a boat unto a desolate place privately. Now, you could translate that by himself, except he wasn't alone. He did this with the disciples. Now, you could, you could get this from Matthew's text, but Mark makes it clear. He makes it plain exactly what's going on. Let me just read to you Mark 6.30-32. through 32. I won't have you turn there because we've got so much to look at, but do note it down. Mark 6.30-32, through 32, that evangelist gives us some more background to this. He says, The apostles gathered together with Jesus, and they reported to him all that they'd done and taught. Now listen. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place. The same words. The same words as in Matthew. And rest a while. That's Jesus' motivation. They're worn out. They're doubtless hit hard by the news of John the Baptist. It's his concern for them that motivates him to say, let's, let's go aside privately by ourselves to a desolate place where we won't be bothered and we can just regroup and recover. Because Mark then adds, for there were many people coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. So out of care for them, Jesus launches this retreat. We've come to call them retreats, but he launches a retreat so they can get away by themselves. And so verse 32 says, they went away in the boat into a desolate place by themselves. Same wording as in Matthew. That was Mark 6, 30 through 32. So Jesus and his disciples were to, to come aside, to recharge, to absorb what was going on, catch their breaths, catch a bite, and a few uh, moments of peace to themselves. But notice how Matthew puts it. He says he, the same word twice in the same verse, verse 13. Now, when Jesus heard, he departed. And when the crowds heard, they followed him. So these, these two things happen in tandem. Jesus heard the news and decided that he needed to get aside with his disciples. The crowd heard that he was going and they decided they needed to follow him. Wherever he was, they were going to be. They weren't through with him yet. So it happens that number three, retreating from a crazed murderer with needy people, his own disciples were needy people, two needy people, number three. He was retreating from a crazed murderer with needy people to more needy people, to needy people. Verse 14, and when he got out of the boat, he saw a great crowd and he was moved with compassion over them and he healed their unwell. Now, I mean, just think about it. 
how would you or I have decided to this situation? I mean, you've been giving, 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 doing, 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 serving, serving, serving. Some hard news hits you, and you think you're going to be able to just get a moment to lean somewhere and catch your breath. And, and the people working with you, you've earned a time out, we would say. And so you go hard to, to and you're rowing across the boat and as, as, across the lake in the boat. And as you near the shore, what do you see on the shore? A bunch of seagulls? Might be seagulls. There's so many of them. Oh, wait. They're not seagulls. They're those people. They're already waiting for us. We'd like to get a breather, but they don't care for us to have a breather. They don't care about us at all. They see something they can use in us. So how would we respond to that? Wouldn't it just be human to be exasperated, to be impatient, to say, come on. I mean, okay, give us a hundred yards clearance for at least three hours. How would that be? And just let us have a bite, and then maybe we can time. No. But that's not Jesus' response. You see, that's you, that's me. That's definitely me. But it's not Jesus. What is Jesus? How does Jesus respond when he sees them? He responds with compassion. He responds with compassion. And that's characteristic of Jesus. This is the sort of word we most often read about the man, Jesus Christ, and what he felt. What he felt, well, I've, I've talked about this word with you before, splonknidzomai, related to the word splonkna, which just means your innards, your, your, your guts. And splonknidzomai means your gut moves, means that you're, you're just, you're feeling deep down to the very core of your being, compassion. So this is a window into the psychology of Jesus, the kind of man he was. And I remind you, the kind of man he was is the kind of man he is. Because yesterday, today, and forever, Jesus Christ is the Hebrews 13.8. He doesn't change. Praise God, he doesn't change. He is still this compassionate person. But this is the second of five times that Matthew uses this. He'd used it back in 936 when he sees the crowds just thrown down and torn up like a bunch of sheep that, been, that had a wolf gone through. And he looks at them and he feels compassion for them. He's moved down to the very depths of his being with care and with mercy. You know, Christian friend, this is how Jesus sees you as you struggle. This is how Jesus sees me in our pain when we come again and again to the ends of ourselves. And we don't hear his voice, we don't see his face, but we know from Scripture he's still that same person. And when he sees his people in pain and in distress, at the end of our ropes, he feels compassion. He's that same person. Hebrews chapter 4 says he's not able to feel with us in our weakness. So we come to the throne of mercy for grace. He's that same Jesus. So he feels deep compassion over them could so legitimately be feeling compassion over himself, <laughs> over his own needs, over his own situation. But that's not where he goes. He goes to them. His heart goes out to them. And, and, and he goes out to their need. And, 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 and I just want you to stop and think. He's our model. When we say we want to be like Jesus, well, that God calls us to be like Jesus, that's what he calls us to be like. What would that be for some of us to even start in that direction? 
It, it, it makes it impossible for us to stay in our tiny little safe ruts where we're surrounded by relatives and people just like us. And it never even occurs to us to break out of that and go up to someone we've never talked to who isn't like us and say, how are you doing? How can I pray for you? Simple as that never enters our mind. Because we're so surrounded by our needs and the reasons we've given why we can't get out of that rut. But here's our model, who we say we, what's the verb we use? We follow Jesus. Well, follow him here. He sees a bunch of needy people. And I'll give you a little clue. This is just a pro tip. Everybody's a needy person. Everybody's a needy person. You've never yet seen a non-needy person. And you won't till you see Jesus. So, here's where Jesus is with people's needs. Two needy people. So, he, he's moved with this feeling, but the feeling doesn't stop with a feeling. You see, his feeling turns into action. He doesn't just say, oh my, isn't that sad? I hope they get what they need. <laughs> That's not Jesus. What does he do? It says, he was moved with compassion. And what does your translation say? You've got it right there on your outline. He was moved with compassion over them, and he did what? He healed their unwell. He healed their unwell. He had the means to help them, and he gave it in healing their unwell. Well now, we've seen Jesus in this retreating. The the apostles also retreat. Let's take a look at their retreat. Verse B, besides their retreating with Jesus, they're retreating right with him from a crazed murderer and among themselves needy people and to these same needy people. But letter B, they retreat from needy people. (laughs) In verse 15, they retreat from needy people. How do I see that? And when evening fell, his disciples came up to him saying, this place is desolate and the supper hour is already passed by. Release the crowds in order that they might go away unto the villages and buy foods for themselves. Okay, let's make sure we understand all that. Evening's following. So that's at least three in the afternoon. It's, It's towards sunset. The sun is nearing the horizon. That's what that means. Evening fell. His disciples came up to him saying, this place is desolate. Well, that was the design. It was supposed to be desolate so they could be by themselves. But here's all these people in this desert. So they list that out for Jesus. And they observe the supper hour has already passed. Jews had, not like the hobbits, I think hobbits have five meals. Jews had commonly three or at least two. And the big meal of the day was supper. The, the last meal of the day. And they say that the hour for supper has already passed. They knew that time. So they say, release the crowds in order that they might go away under the villages and buy foods for themselves. So what are they saying in effect here? They're saying, well, obviously they're, they're hungry. They're going to need to eat. We're not near anything. I mean, I don't see any Whataburgers or McDonald's anywhere. So you need to let them go so they can go feed themselves. They've got a need, and the apostles want them to go away and meet that need. They want them to go away and meet their need. They're retreating from that need. They're not going to, they're not going to do anything about their need. Now, I, I, I should tell you, I, I don't think it's so much that they rejected the idea of, of doing anything for them. I don't think it occurred to them. 
How could it occur to them? We're going to see there's thousands of people there, thousands of people there, and they've got nothing themselves. So I don't even think they thought, well, should we help them? Nah, let's not help them. It wouldn't have even occurred to them to help them because it just wasn't even a possibility as they did the math. And we'll see it. It's understandable that they would do it that way from one view. But the need is too great and their resources are too small. So they just back off and say, you need to send them away so they can get something to eat. Well, so how Jesus responds to them teaches you and me, but will we listen? God help us listen. Teaches you and me a great deal about how he disciples us. If we are genuine disciples of the actual Jesus, he does the same thing to us. So let's see, Roman numeral two. We've gone from retreating to advancing. We will see Jesus advancing in this section, verses 16 through 21. And the first area we see him advancing is we see him advancing the disciples' growth. D-I-S-C-I-P-L-E-S, apostrophe, growth. G-R-O-W-T-H. But Jesus said to them, they do not have need to go away. You give them something to eat. You want to say, oh, that Jesus, what a kidder. <laughs> you give them something to eat, he says. But they say to him, we do not have anything here except five loaves and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. All right, let's take this apart. First, we see Jesus' provocative command in verse 16. But Jesus said to them, they do not have need to go away. You give them something to eat. There's a reason I, I've translated that very literally. They do not have need to go away. Now, it was obvious to the disciples that they do have need to go away, but Jesus starts right off contradicting their perception and their conclusion. Right off saying that he doesn't see it the way they see it. They need to go away, the disciples say. They don't need to go away. They do not have need to go away, Jesus says. And then he says, you give them something to eat. Now, in in the Greek syntax, the grammar structure The you is very emphatic. You, you give them something to eat. They say, you send them away. And he says, no, you give them something to eat. Now, that's provocative. Now, now, I call this a command. Had had you ever thought this is a command? Well, what makes something a command? Uh, When somebody tells someone else to do something, that's what a command is. You say, thank you, Pastor. But that's what a command is. You tell somebody to do something. That's a command. Is Jesus telling them to do something? Tell me. Is he? Yes? No? Yeah. He's flat out telling. He's not asking them if they think it's a good idea. He's not saying saying to them, hey, I got a crazy thought. What if you gave them something to eat? What do you think about that? He didn't say anything like that. What did he say? You, very emphatically, with the imperative um, voice, you give them something to eat. So it's a straight-up command. How provocative is that? So note this well. There's no doubt. Is there any doubt about who said it? No, he's standing right there. Any doubt of what their relationship is? No, that was clarified when they became his disciples. He's Lord, they're slaves. He's teacher, they're disciples. Any doubt about what he's saying? Well, no. (laughs) I mean, the one thing you can say about the command is it's short and it's clear. Give them something to eat. But the thing is, as they're looking at the face of it, 
it just got to sound crazy to them. It's just got to sound crazy. So that brings us, verse 17, to their collapse. We've seen Jesus' provocative command. Now we see their collapse. Verse 17, but they say to him, we do not have anything here except five loaves and two fishes. Now, when a master gives a command, what is a slave supposed to do? Obey. Uh, You might say trust and obey, right? Because you take it that the, the master has a reason. He knows what he's doing. It's a sane command. So in obedience, there's an element of trust. You trust and therefore you obey. Well, their master's given a command, and do they obey? Well, no, no, they don't obey at all. What they do, for one thing, is they throw his have back at them. That's why I translate it literally. He says they don't have need to leave, and the disciples say, have? We don't have anything to feed them. <laughs> you say they have no need, we're telling you we have no food. It's an impossible command. Uh, And they explain in detail about how they could not possibly obey this command. Now notice, they're very detailed about this. They've already, to them, it's got to feel like, why are we explaining this? We just told you it's a desert place. There are crowds. It's past dinner time. You heard that, right? And we've got nothing here. So they've got to go get something to eat somewhere. We've already explained that. And to that, they now add, plus... We've got five loaves and two fish. And, and when you read loaves, don't think of a, you know, Weber's or, or whatever loaf sliced into a dozen, two dozen pieces. It would be more like a, a loaf would be like pita bread or flat bread, just a single thing. That would be a loaf in their mind. And so they've just got five of those, like five flat breads, five pita breads and two little fish. And they're surrounded by thousands and thousands of people. So... So they just, they need to, they explain to him that they can't possibly be expected to obey this command. Now I want to tell you that as a Christian and as a pastor, this is a very, very common response to clear commands of Jesus. You say to a wife, here's this verse that says, respect your husband and submit to him. And you get 15 reasons why she can't possibly do that. You explain to a husband why he must love his wife as Christ loves the church and care for for her as he does for his own body. And you get 15 reasons immediately why he can't possibly do that. A child to respect his and honor his father and mother. And a Christian why they should be involved in and join a church. And you immediately get reason after reason why, oh no, they can't possibly expect, be expected to do that. I know of a pastor who talked to a lady who was a church member had simply stopped coming to church. She felt like she had reasons to and he exhorted her on the need to come and she was very animated and very, very energized and explained to him in detail all the reasons why she can't possibly, she's very excited about this, why she can't possibly come to church. And she kept saying, but I love the Lord, but I love the Lord, but not enough to do what he says to do. This is very, very common. Maybe you read it first and thought it isn't, but it is very, very common. Somebody gets a command from God in Scripture that crosses His will or that would force us to get out of our comfortable rut and do something, and we're all about why we can't possibly be expected. And while we've got a note from our mother explaining why we're excused from having to obey that command of God, And so while we look at these guys and we think we're not that unlike them, are we? 
wouldn't it be great to know how Jesus responds to that? Well, we can. Verse 3, Jesus' instructive command. Does he say, oh, well, you know, you're right. That was a silly thought I had. What was I thinking? You can't possibly feed them. Never mind. I'll dismiss them. No. No, what he says to them is he says, bring them here to me. They're not off the the hook at all. And what he says is very curt. In in, in Greek, it's just four words. Very, very literally, it's just bring to me here them. (laughs) He's very curt and very direct. Bring these things you've got. Bring them to me. Now, honestly, shouldn't this have been their first thought? What had they just seen Jesus doing all afternoon? Tell me. Healing the sick. What, what, what kind of sick people did we see him heal? Lepers? Uh, blind people? Deaf people? Uh, paralytics? Dead people? I'd seen him tell the storm to shut up, and it shut up. And the waves all stilled. But it didn't even occur to them to bring what they had to Jesus and say, how can we help these people? Jesus' first thought is, how can I help these people? That's not even one of their thoughts. It's, how can we get rid of these people? How can we get them away from us or stop bothering us? So Jesus says, bring them here to me. It should have been their first thought. All they saw were the needs and the problems, and they didn't even notice Jesus had just worked miracle after miracle. And apparently they forgot that they'd been doing the same. They'd been working miracles. Jesus gave them the power to work miracles, remember, back in chapter 10. So it never occurred to them that they might be part of meeting these needs. They don't even pause there. They go straight to send the people away. So what Jesus does here, you need to notice and and, and note, Note this well, the way he cultivates and grows these disciples is he faces them with something impossible and doesn't let them off the hook. He gives them something that is going to call on them to grow and stretch beyond what they'd ever done before, and he doesn't let them off the hook for that. But what he does tell them to do is bring, bring them here to me. Now, uh, you'd think that that would have occurred to them from the first But there's so much here. There's so much in that. Bring them here to me. Well, that really is the answer to everything. That that really is the deepest need. Bring them to Jesus. Yes, in our hearts, we can't think, in our hands, we can't think of what we could do with these. But in His hands, what could He do with them? Well, they should have by then had that, that, that thought suggest itself to them to take it and bring it to Jesus. They'd remembered everything but who they were with. They were all about the size of the crowd, the remoteness of the location, the depth of their need, and the the lack of their resources. They were all about that, but they forgot one important factor, the greatness of their Lord. So, we are brought then to Jesus advancing His self-revelation. He takes this situation to advance His self Revelation in verses 19 through 21. We've seen the heart of Jesus, and it's a compassionate heart, moved by human need. Now we see the hand of Jesus, and it's a powerful hand, able to meet human need. So, number one, then, he is self-revealed as in charge and all in. As in charge and all in, in verse 19. 
and ordering the crowds to recline on the grass, taking the five loaves and two fish, looking up into heaven, he blessed God. And he gave, I'm sorry, and he broke and gave the disciples the loaves and the disciples gave them to the crowds. Jesus is in charge and he's all in. First, let's look at his orders. The, the disciples aren't, aren't inclined to obey, but at least the crowds do. He orders them to recline, and they do. Uh, interesting verb he uses, a verb that is suggestive of seating yourself at a banquet. <laughs> Though they're here at, in, the, in the desert, um, indeed they are sitting down to a, a meal with a king. They're sitting down to a banquet. They're reclining to eat. Now, I just want you to notice he's in charge. He tells them what to do, but he's also all in. What's he going to look like if he sits them down to eat and doesn't give them anything? You know, most, most charlatans leave themselves some escape, some wiggle room. There's some way they can explain the failure they know they're going to have uh, or redefine it so that they're not humiliated. But here Jesus puts himself in a situation where these thousands and thousands of people are sitting in groups, Mark tells us, if he doesn't produce something for them, he will look an absolute fool. But I want you to note that that thought never crosses his mind. We never see self-doubt in Jesus. We never see anything but absolute assurance. And as I've said in the past, it's a modern thing to, to try to project angst into stories and, and all heroes have to be conflicted and angst-ridden and troubled and self-doubting, but not Jesus. Now, people have tried to do that with Jesus, but not, not actual Jesus. He knew he, who he was from the start. He knew absolutely who he was. And uh, he has no doubt about what's going to happen. And he has no fear of being made to look a fool because of his inability to do anything. There's no desperation. He's utterly assured and utterly in control. So we see his orders. Secondly, note his blessing. There's no direct object there. It doesn't say he blessed the food or blessed the bread. Matthew simply says he blessed. And the, the, the best reading, I think, is that he blessed God. We see that often, blessed in Scripture, blessed be God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who's blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Blessed be God who uh, brought us to life again through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. And we see it in the Old Testament as well. In fact, the Mishnah, which is a body of, of teaching for Jewish behavior, we're not sure how old it was, but uh, it contains things that probably go back to the time of Jesus. And there is a blessing when you're about to eat bread in the Mishnah that goes like this. Blessed art thou, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. So Jesus may have said some blessing like that, blessing God, because he, he doesn't look at the bread. He looks up to heaven, Matthew tells us, and he blesses God. And thirdly, we see his distribution now the disciples do do what he commanded them to do. They give them something to eat when he gives them something to give them. They'd not even considered that, but now they're doing it. Now they are doing what he said. Now they brought the five loaves and two fish to Jesus, and now they have something to give to thousands of people from these five loaves and two fishes. But what they have to give is something God gave them to give. And I just want to tell you, that's always the case. That's always the case. We just gave an offering. What do we give God? We gave God part of what he gave us. <laughs> he gave it to us first. And that's the case of every part of our Christian lives. Anything we do in God's service, we do with what God gives us. There's a beautiful verse in First Chronicles 29, 14. The people had given all sorts of things 
to King David to prepare for the temple that his son would build. And David prays a wonderful prayer, and he says in 1 Chronicles 29, 14, But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to offer as willingly as this? For all things come from you, and from your hand we have given you. Now that's just it. That's exactly right. And so the disciples are giving the people what they have from the hand of Jesus to give. So I, I just want you to stop and reflect. When they said that they had nothing to give the crowds, were they right? They were right as far as that goes. They were right. It was a, it was a terrible, dire situation. And they had nothing on them but this little bit of food. Where did they go wrong then? Leaving Jesus out of the equation. Not thinking well enough of Jesus. Not thinking highly enough of Jesus. That was the problem. They didn't consider Jesus. They'd kind of forgotten about Jesus. And Jesus could give and give and give and give. And that's what Jesus does. And that's what Jesus did. Now, I'm not sure exactly where to fit this. I'll just squeeze it in here. Do you notice a, an irony here? Jesus, Jesus can make food. Cool. When did that come up before earlier in Matthew's gospel, the issue of Jesus maybe making food? Temptation in the wilderness, where the devil says to him, it's been 40 days without food, and the devil says, command these rocks that they become bread. And Jesus says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He won't make bread for himself, but he makes bread for thousands of hungry people. He doesn't show compassion to himself, but he does show compassion to these needy people. That's more about Jesus, the person he is, the kind of man he is, the kind of Lord he is. So he's self-revealed as in charge and all in. He's self-revealed, secondly, as almighty. This is a miracle that's in all four Gospels. Many of them are only in one or two or even three of the Gospels, but this is one that's in all four. Uh, obviously, it was very striking to all the apostles, and they all felt it was worth telling. So, uh, he, uh, we read in verse 20, and they all ate and were satisfied. That means that word really means stuffed. They had all they could eat. They couldn't touch another fish or another bite of bread. And by the way, fish and bread was staple diet in that area. So this was a good meal. Uh, they were stuffed. They were all satisfied, and they took up the excess of the broken pieces, twelve full baskets. Now you say, well, Moses did something like that. Yes, he did something like that. He told people God would rain manna from heaven. And he did. What did Moses do? He just told them it was going to happen. The prophets did something like that. What did they do? About the same. But here, this is something that Jesus does. Now, maybe you've heard explanations. There, there's a uh, a commentator named William Barclay. He wrote a series of New Testament books called Daily Study Bible, and I don't recommend them. Sadly, they are con uh, popular among some Christians because he's easy to read, and he seems like a scholar, although he doesn't document what he says. Really irritating. But he's also not biblically sound. He's not a Bible believer. And on this, what he says, the miracle is, get this, the miracle is a miracle of generosity. Because all those people really did have some food, but they weren't going to share it. And so when Jesus gave the example and, and led, they were all moved to, after all, yes, okay, well, we'll bring out our food and we'll share it. And so they all had the food. No food was created, no food was made, and no miracle was done except the miracle of generosity. 
Well, there's no chance <laughs> that that is what is going on here at all. It's not hinted at in the text. And in fact, in John uh, 6.14, John says, Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had done, they said, Truly, this is the prophet who is to come into the world. So it's a sign, it's a miracle, and it's an act of creation. It's a divine work. It's the sort of thing that the Old Testament says over and over again, God does. So again, Moses said, how would bread come out of heaven? Who would rain that? Gabriel? God would rain that out of heaven. God does that. God provides this food. In fact, he provides all food all the time. It comes from God. Psalm 104:14. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants, for man to cultivate that he may bring forth food, bread from the earth. Psalm 104:14. Psalm 104:27. About all creatures, they all look to you to give them their food in due season. Who you? God, Yahweh. Psalm 136:25. God gives food to all flesh. That was 136.25. And finally, Psalm 145.15 and 16. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. The creation of food is an act of God. Did Jesus not know that when he did this? Of course Jesus knew that. What does Jesus reveal about himself when he does not predict food will be given, but actually causes food to be created? He's revealing that he's almighty, that he's God. He has the power. He personally has the power God has. Bring them here to me, he says. Then he blesses God and he gives them all the food they need for thousands of people. So it is a divine work and it is a gift of life here. Uh, when Jesus quotes the verse, man does not live by bread alone, what's one thing that verse tells us? Well, man does live by bread, <laughs> right? Just not bread alone, but he does live on bread. You need bread as a, as a symbol for food. You need food to live. Food is life. No food, no life, right? You can do that kind of math. I can't do that kind of math. Well, what happened at the first banquet, though? What did that king give? Death. He killed a righteous man. What does this king give? Life. He feeds hungry people out of his own bounty. So uh, contrast the kings once again. Who, which one do you want to have for your king? The king who randomly gives death on a whim or the one who gives life out of compassion? Well, that would be Jesus and Jesus only. So it's a divine work. It's a gift of life. Thirdly, his self-revelation as all-sufficient in verse 21. He is self-revealed as all-sufficient. And those eating were about 5,000 men apart from women and children. Now, we commonly call this the feeding of the 5,000, which is a good place to start. But what, is, what does Matthew say? Matthew, the tax collector who was really careful about counting things and keeping careful numbers. There were 5,000 what? Men, including women and children? Oh, no, I just read apart from women and children. Now, you don't know how many men were married there, but that was the common thing for a man to be married. So you figure every man there had a wife with him. Well, now we're up to 10,000. Suppose each of them had one child. Well, now we're up to 15,000. But how many families only had one child? 
Not many. <laughs> not many. So this was not the feeding of the 5,000. This was the feeding of the 10 to 40,000. I have lived in cities smaller than that. I lived in a city of something like 4,000 people. Then I moved to the big city. It was like 30,000 people. Well, Jesus fed about that whole city here. But, but notice this. It wasn't the size of the crowd that meant anything to Jesus. He didn't have compassion on them because they were a big crowd. I remember he's walking by one time in the Gospel of Luke, and he sees a little widow woman crying. Why is she crying? Why is she crying? Well, her only son has died. And what does Jesus feel and what does he do? He feels compassion for her and he goes over and he stops the funeral procession and he resurrects her son. It, it doesn't take a big crowd to get, you know, you've got celebrities who, who won't speak to groups under a certain size. Well, that would not have been Jesus. It wasn't because they were a big crowd. It was because of who he was. Whether a big crowd or whether one lonely, heartbroken widow woman out of resources Jesus is compassionate. Jesus has the ability to act. Jesus does act. And so, so we read that there are about 5,000 men apart from women and children. So 10, 15, 20, 30,000 more. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of people for five pita breads and two fish. John, in fact, tells us it's barley bread and it's little fish. <laughs> as, as if the numbers alone weren't enough. But interestingly, a little boy had surrendered them, and the apostles brought them to Jesus, and in the hands of Jesus, it was enough. Now, don't mistake. It wasn't that they took these, these five loaves of bread and brought out little tiny pieces so that everyone could have a little tiny piece. What does Matthew say? They're all stuffed. And there were 12 baskets left, so each of the, each of the apostles presumably could have had his own provender to take with him, his own supply to take with him. None for Jesus, interesting, but 12 taken up for all of them. So he abundantly met the needs. So are five loaves and two, two fish a lot of food? No, but in Jesus' hands, they become sufficient. All right, so now let's reflect on this, and, and the conclusion part is not just um, a wrap-up. Uh, it's longer than usual because I really want to us all to think and get the full value out of this portion of Scripture. So don't put your pen down. Don't put your outline down. There'll be plenty to take note about here. Notice uh, Jesus' heart is compassionate and his hand is mighty. He's not somebody who feels something but can't do anything about it. And he's not somebody who's got all the stuff he needs but just doesn't care. <laughs> He's somebody who has a, a very tender heart. And as one commentator said, he couldn't look at need like this and not feel. That just wasn't Jesus. He felt and he did. He had a compassionate heart. He had a mighty hand. And he still deals with us today the same way that he deals with the disciples here. And we still respond in the same way. Jesus tells us to do something. Jesus tells us to do something, and how do we respond? A list of reasons why we can't do it. If we even acknowledge that we've heard in the first place, if, if we don't just listen or let our eyes wander, if we hear it and we register the impact, we immediately come with an, a list of reasons why we can't possibly do what he commands all his people to do. So now, 
Where would popular preaching take this story? I know exactly where it would take it. I've seen it done. Popular young preachers with huge churches full of young people would take this and they would say, so you see, they brought what they had to Jesus and Jesus made a fantastic thing out of it. And so you just need to do that. You just need to take yourself to Jesus and give yourself to him and he'll do amazing things with you. And they get all excited because they're thinking, oh yes, I can, I can become a CEO for myself. I can become a famous author for myself. I can climb that mountain and feel good about myself for myself. I can meet this challenge. I can meet that goal. I, I'll just vision cast and then I'll bring it to Jesus and Jesus just like this story teaches, will enable me to meet my goal. That's exciting. That fills churches and gets young people very excited. I just would ask you to come back to the context. Is this anything about anything like that? What's the context here? Jesus feeling compassion about, for needy people and telling his disciples to go meet those needs. In other words, to show love for those needy people, and them saying, I can't, we can't possibly, we can't possibly meet those needs. We can't possibly serve. So this is about serving God and others, not about vision casting. This is about, can, can you say amen? Okay. This is about the glory of God and the needs of others. This is about loving God and loving other people. This is about putting myself out in Jesus' name, in obedience to his commands, in trust in his provision, to try to meet the needs of the needy people who are around me, which, as I said, I'm never not around needy people, even when I'm alone, but that's another thing. So this is about being holy and loving. This is not about being ambitious and self-confident. This is not about that at all. And so when we hear a difficult command to show love and commitment and to serve God, we're all excuses and impossibilities and reasons why we can't. But won't we learn from the apostles here? Won't we learn from Jesus here? This is here for our instruction. So, so here's the issue and the resting point. The issue never is do you have what you do you have enough? Are you sufficient? That's never the issue because I'll tell you the answer is always no. The answer is always no. I don't have enough. I'm not sufficient. Paul says, speaking of his ministry, who's sufficient for these things? And the answer he expects is nobody. But then he says our sufficiency comes from God, who's made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant. Did they have the food for the people really hid away somewhere? No, they really didn't have it. But they did have Jesus, and they did have a command from Jesus. And they could have trusted and obeyed, and they learned to. So the question is not, do you have enough? The question is, will you give yourself to Jesus? Will you take what you have and bring it to Jesus and give it in his service? Will you take what little you have? Will, will we, will I take what little I have and bring it to Jesus, put it in his hands, and use it for service? So you see, there's a, a church I often see the ad on, on Astros, uh, show, Astros games. They just must have an astronomical budget. I mean, they, they have ads on every game and spoken ads and, and logos. And what's their motto? A big church makes a big difference. Well, you know, I don't disagree with that. No doubt a big church could make a big difference to the glory of whom? The big church, because it's not surprising that a big church can make a big difference. Ah, but what if a little church made a big difference? That would glorify God. 
You remember God and Gideon, right? And Gideon has not nearly enough soldiers. And God says, what? You've got way too many soldiers. And he sends a bunch of them home. And Gideon's thinking, oh, this is crazy. And God says, eh, still too many. And he wheels them down to nothing. Why? Because he wants the glory from it. Okay, now, the, the worst thing here would be to be thinking, yes, I'm virtuous. I'm in a little church. Listen, there is nothing virtuous about being a little church. There's nothing to be proud about being a little church any more than being a big church. There's nothing good about being a little church per se. It doesn't matter. What matters are the people in that church giving everything they have to the Lord. Are they committed to showing love for God and for others beyond what's comfortable to glorify God? That's the issue. So if it's a little church that's doing that, oh yes, that's a glorious thing. And what God might do with that is a glorious thing. But we're in a situation where you just got a letter saying, we can't find volunteers to have a children's church during the service. Do we not have, an, uh, not from among people who are already running themselves ragged serving. So how does that happen? Well, it happens by people not seeing these things, by people having reasons. So they sit under the ministry of the Word of God for years and years, but they never join the church. They never say, I want to serve. I want to be under the, uh, commit myself to this church and its ministry and put myself under uh, its leadership and discipline. So they're not even in a position to serve in positions like that, let alone there. But, but then there are members who have committed themselves, but they just don't don't see these things, or don't see themselves in these things. But leave that aside. What about just the issue of reaching out in love to other people? Somebody who's not your age, not your skin color, not your, not, not your already in your comfortable uh, uh, circle of friends. These are the sorts of things God calls us all to because he calls us to lay down our lives for one another. Jesus laid down his life for you. You've read that in First John. So we ought to lay down our lives for one another. But we say, oh, but I can't. Let me give you all the reasons I can. I'm, I'm so shy. I'm so afraid. I'm so busy. I mean, you know, between um, football and baseball and soccer and ballet and basket weaving and karate and, you know, elocution and all these other things, I'm just way too busy. I can't possibly. And we've got all the reasons why we can't. And we don't see the significance and the similarity between these situations. Uh, this is where this calls me and this calls you. This calls us to reconsider, have you taken what you've got and given it to Jesus? Given it to his service in faith and obedience like a slave should do. A slave should trust and obey. So do, do I trust and obey? That's certainly what I'm called to do here now. What can Jesus do with that though? You say, I don't have much to give. Well, five loaves and two fish? <laughs> it's amazing what what, what you have can be done with if we put it in Jesus' hands. And that would be to the glory of God and to the fulfillment of what Scripture calls us all to. So let's hear this. And, and the, the, the thought I want to leave you with as I close this is, I know that this has fallen in every hard hair. This, is, this has had something for every one of us to hear, including me, certainly. What are we going to do about it? It's not the first time we've heard a challenge, heard the challenge, some of these specific challenges. And we thought, yeah, I really should do something about it. And then we forget it as soon as we're out the door. So what's going to make this time different? This time, are we going to go to the Lord with this and maybe make some, begin to make some changes in this direction? Oh, God grant it be so. This is such a dear 
church. I love this church. And, and God has made such a beautiful thing for this church. I, I hope to spend the rest of my life serving in this church, uh, God's providence aside. What can God do with us if we give ourselves to Jesus in love and service and then give what he gives us to give? And stop making the reasons why we can't, but look for ways to do it. If something's important, we'll find a way. If it's not important, we won't even look for a way. God help us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this word which exalts Jesus and is a sharp two-edged sword to us and calls us to the path of discipleship. And discipleship is not a, it's not a coast. It's a climb. It's a walk. It's not a, a vacation. It's a battle. So help us all, Father, to grow and to uh, mature and always to stretch and yearn and be filled with zeal and eagerness to see how much we can do to serve you and look for ways to serve you and be faithful to you and always finding ways to abound more and more to your glory. And we pray that you'll be glorified by this dear little church and that you will use us with fruit and give us fruitfulness and effectiveness far beyond our resources so that it would be to your glory. People can all see that a big God makes an immense difference. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.